You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this is Vernacular Podcast. This is episode six of season three, and we have a couple of very interesting guests lined up for you today. But before we do that, we have some things to talk about. Yeah, we wanted to remind you to log on to iTunes and rate and review us. Please do. It really helps us gain visibility in the iTunes store, and it lets us know how we're doing. So log in to iTunes through your computer or your iPhone and review us there. Yeah, and if you don't want to write a review, you can just give us a one through five star rating. Very easy. Preferably It'll take five about stars. Ten but... seconds. <laughs> but yeah, do it now. Do it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> All right. Now continue listening. Um, we wanted to tell you to check out our website, which we have Zach recently revamped. Redesigned. Yep, it looks yep. great. And this is this isn't kind of old news. It's been revamped for about two or three weeks now. But in case you've not gotten that word, check out vernacularpodcast.com. We've made it a little cleaner, a little bit easier to navigate. And on there, you can also check out our blog, which is at blog.vernacularpodcast.com. Uh, and we've been doing a new thing on the blog and in an email blast called The Vernaculist. And The Vernaculist is a compilation of some of the things that we think are the most interesting reads from around the web each week. So if you want to check that out, go to blog.vernacularpodcast.com. Look at one of the more recent iterations of The Vernaculist. If that's something you want to get in your inbox, click the link to sign up to receive it in your email. And on a different note, we reached the 30-day mark of buying a new mattress. So this is a very different note. Like cut <laughs> cut and move on to a totally different topic. Unrelated, unrelated to the podcast. But we realized that we had had our new mattress for 30 days and we were just reflecting on the fact that we were liking it and wanted to keep it. And that well, reminded us. Well, the background us, is the 30-day mark where we got our mattress is the point at which oh, yeah, you, where you can could return, return it. it because right. they won't let you return it before 30 days is up because mattresses need to settle, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, something like that. And so you need to make sure that you're experiencing you the mattress as the mattress actually is rather than as it as it is, you know, firm and unforgiving out of the box. I don't know. Something like that. So we're at the point where we can return it, but I don't think we want to. But it, it made us think about the uh, kind of amusing mattress store story that we have from when we bought this mattress. So about a month ago, we needed to uh, get a new mattress. So we went to the mattress store. And we had talked before about kind of what our price ceiling was for a mattress. I was very insistent that we we make sure we go in there with a price ceiling. And it, it was a good idea. Uh, it was a very low price ceiling. Yes. So what we have now is a fine mattress. I'm not complaining. But this is not a uh, Tempur-Pedic. Is that the nice one? I think so. So we walk in there and the mattress lady, you know, good afternoon. How are you guys doing? All very excited to sell us a mattress. We're the only people in the store. <laughs> and we're like, we're good. We're here to buy a mattress. And so she's like, well, how about you hop on this one and see how this one feels? And it was a Tempur-Pedic, which I later found out was like $13,000. Like It was like the Maserati of mattresses. <laughs> and It conforms to your body. Right. She wanted to know what our sleeping postures are to determine what kind of mattress we both needed. And I think they determined that Zach needed more of a firm mattress and I needed one that would have a little bit of a give because I sleep on my side. And so she had to find something that was a good mixture of those two. I don't For whatever reason, know, the, the but... tempur I guess, fit that bill. So she had us try this. And it felt amazing. Like I almost fell asleep right in the mattress store as soon as my head <laughs> hit the pillow. It was and like she offered us. It was like what I would imagine it feeling like if Santa Claus gave you a hug. <laughs> It was just, it was so amazing. And Zach was just like kind of lounging on there. And I was like, all right, next one. I was like, Sally, (laughs) let's get this one. Not seriously, but it was amazing. 
And then we were like, well, this is definitely not even close to anywhere in right. our price range. Right. Which so, we had yet to reveal to the mattress right, you saleswoman. Hold your cards close. <laughs> So then, yeah, we said this is way too expensive. And she was like, okay, well, let's check out some other options. Then she was taking us like down the line of Tempur-Pedic. And I was all willing to try all of these just because I love the feel. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll lay on all these. They feel so nice. And I was getting a little bit impatient. So eventually, Sally was just like, cut. <laughs> I was just like, just <laughs> none be of these are what we're going to buy. This is our, our ceiling. And what do you have within that price range? So then she took us to the back of the store where there was a row of mattresses standing up and she pulled yeah, like one the of back them of the out. store, like the mattresses that aren't even on display. They're like hidden from public <laughs> view because they're like they're not the Tempur Pedics. Let's just say that. <laughs> so I think Zach was so a, like, Oh, a little that's your price range. Okay. Yeah. Well we if you come back with me. We have a few options. If you <laughs> So we did have some options to choose from and in the end found a mattress that we're really happy with. That's true. But I curtailed Zach's mattress trying. We could have taken out a second mortgage to buy a Tempur-Pedic. I don't know why that wasn't an option to you. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, Yeah. So anyway, it was an amusing story. Uh, Hopefully, if you go mattress shopping, you can have an opportunity to try the Tempur-Pedic as well. (laughs) Um, Maybe just today, you know, take take a moment, head to a mattress firm or... Um, a sleepies and hop on a Tempur-Pedic. See what Santa Claus this hop feels your, like. Your weekend nap. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh man, that'd be so nice if they could give you nap trials. Oh, maybe they it reminds would. me of the episode in the office when it's um, Kelly's birthday and she gets the oh, option right. between an hour of TV or an hour of napping, but not both. Right, but not both. She and has then to choose. She gets an hour of napping and they give her a blanket and a pillow and she lays underneath the conference room table with the lights off and the blinds closed and she gets an hour of napping. So it'd be nice if you could just go into a but mattress then Dwight, store and get an hour of napping. At exactly an hour, walks in with like pots and pans. Yeah, and wakes her up. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, that was our mattress shopping experience. And we are very happy with our mattress in case you were concerned. Right. Um, <laughs> Lastly, we wanted to mention that if you listened to last week's episode with Margaret, we had so much fun with her. She had so much fun that we have made her a contributor to yes, Immaculate. Yes, we have. So she is our foodie. And we don't have her up on the website yet, but we are just so excited about it that we needed to announce it today. So we're building quite an impressive team of contributors, and they're all very interesting people to talk to, and you can look forward to hearing more from them as we go forward. But check out that uh, listing. If you go on our website, you can look at the staff page, and you can look at all of our contributors, including Will and Catherine and Jordan and Joshua and Muriel and Ishan and now Margaret. So we're pretty excited about the team that we have uh, doing this with us at Vernacular Podcast. All right. Now on to our guest. All right, we're back, uh, and we're back with Kevin. Now, uh, Kevin is a friend of mine who is a self-described classics enthusiast. I believe I've described him as an expert before, and I think of him as an expert because he knows a lot more than me about the classics, but he only describes himself as an enthusiast. So, Kevin, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So, Kevin, we had to have you on the show because our listeners will remember last episode we talked to Margaret and Margaret spoke to us about the restaurant she manages and a new restaurant that she's helping to open up. And she used the word peripatetic in this conversation. And this is a word I had not heard before. And I had to look it up and find out what it meant. And I found out that peripatetic is an actual word. It's spelled <laughs> P-E-R-I-P-A-T-E-T-I-C. 
And it means, well, actually has two definitions. One is traveling from place to place, but the other definition is Aristotelian. And since this is a podcast on human flourishing, and since this is vernacular, we need to find out what this word really means and translate it to the vernacular and talk about how we got a word that means both traveling from place to place and Aristotelian. So I thought, hey, let's bring on our classics expert uh, enthusiast (laughs) and ask him. So Kevin, tell us about this word, peripatetic. Right. So uh, peripatetic is just one of those really uh, fascinating, beautiful Greek words that uh, someone thought was you know, such a beautiful word that they didn't even bother to actually translate it. They just went yes. ahead and, and made it a word. Perfect. So, uh, that makes me feel better uh, because there's no English part to it that I can kind of grab onto and understand. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, so, so kind of the easiest, the easiest translation would be itinerant. Uh, someone who wanders, you know, walks back and forth, especially, uh, it's, it's most frequently, I think, used to describe someone who, who travels in, in a job. So an itinerant preacher or an itinerant, um, food service yeah. professional, which was the concept. Sure, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the, the other most common, uh, place it shows up and, and probably the, in contemporary English, the, the, the place where it's used the most is in philosophy, where it is used to, uh, describe someone who would be an inherent to, uh, the teaching or, or the methods of Aristotle. And the way uh, or the reason why uh, that has come in, into being is kind of debatable. And there's uh, two different explanations. Uh, the first is uh, about the Lyceum. The Lyceum was the place in Aristotle where, or the place in Greece where Aristotle uh, taught, because Aristotle, as a Macedonian and not an Athenian citizen, was not able to own land. So he had to teach in the public place, and the public place he chose was the Lyceum, which was uh, part of the big gymnasium where anyone could go and meet. And, and so he would go and gather there with his, uh, with his friends and his followers, and he would teach there. And originally the school kind of got this name, the Peripatos School, and Peripatos came from the Greek peripatoi, which means a covered walkway, and the Lyceum was sort right, of, of littered naturally. with these... Right. <laughs> littered with these covered walkways. And um, so they just kind of ascribed that to Aristotle and called that the name of the school. And eventually what that evolved into was the Peripateticos school. The Peripateticos school and Peripateticos uh, actually refers to the act of walking. And um, the way this came to be was there's sort of this reputation that Aristotle had for walking around as he was teaching. Um, and this came to us, uh, kind of passed down to us through different biographies. Uh, basically, he said, he said, he said, he said. Uh, and and the best or, or kind of most um, reputable lineage that this story comes to us is through Hermippus of Smyrna, via Diogenes Laertes, and Diogenes was a famous uh, biographer of the ancients, and he and his uh, life of Aristotle, life being the word for biography these ancients like to use all the time, uh, kind of quotes Hermes of Smyrna, and he says essentially that the name Peripatetic came because uh, Aristotle, upon returning to the Lyceum and teaching, uh, 
uh, would make a public walk around the Lyceum and he would walk up and down discussing philosophy with his pupils until, quote, it was time to rub themselves with oil, whatever that might mean, you know, because whenever we finish a conversation, we always just love to rub ourselves with oil. That is sort of my go-to <laughs> immediately when I finish. I mean, especially in, especially in academic conversation. Right. Just nothing nothing beats it once you've you've really just gotten all the intellectuals amount just to rub yourself with oil exactly. and finish the day. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, that is definitely so this comes that comes to us through uh through diogenes Laertes, and and it's interesting because he sort of accepts this story as true and it's passed down that way and the first time it really apparently comes into uh, or is challenged is by hegel uh george hegel who is the very influential 19th century german philosopher Classic hegel, and he just dismisses it out of challenge hand. things Right, exactly. And he just dismisses it out of hand, which is very interesting. Uh, the quote where in um, his history of philosophy, he's talking and he says he refers to the word peripatoi and peripateticos. And he says it was from these walks that the school received the name of peripatetics and not from walking about on the part of Aristotle. So he's referring back to the colonnades that covered walkways. And he just in typical Hegel fashion, just drops this bomb on us and then just no quotes, no references, and just moves on as though we're just supposed to accept it. So, <laughs> and, and what did Aristotle ever do to him that he has to take that away from him? You know what I mean? Uh, exactly. Like Hegel's just, like, he's just mad at Aristotle because he disagrees with him on some things. He's just like, oh, by the way, that word doesn't come from Aristotle. It comes from the walkways of the school. Yeah, exactly. It, it's one of those strange mysteries and um, – you know, it, it, it's come up into this debate now where there's all this disagreement and there are people who uh, devote a lot of time to worrying about exactly where the word exactly came to be ascribed to Aristotle. Um, but in the end, I think we really just have a, a really charming, wonderful story about uh, Aristotle and maybe even this vision, whether true or not, this kind of pathway into his life that kind of brings him back down to earth and shows him to us as as just a person who went on walks like anyone else and enjoyed walking with his friends, or at the very least, uh, that's what people back then remembered him for. And I, I like to side with uh, with the people who are close to the situation on these sorts of issues, even if we like to make up stories about our friends. Uh, at the very least, they show something about the character of our friends. So it's it's, it's, it's a, I think it's a nice story and it's charming. Well said. Yeah, it's much more charming than just, oh, yeah, it comes from the archways, the covered walkways uh, at the, <laughs> the Lyceum. Maybe yeah, Hegel absolutely. felt that since there he didn't have a special word that was associated with his name, besides like Hegelian, that Aristotle <laughs> shouldn't have a special word associated with his name. That's a good point. Uh, probably right. Pretty curmudgeonly, you know. It's <laughs> <laughs> very curmudgeonly. Uh, one other minor point here, just on your point about how the Greeks called other biographies the life of. I hope that if I ever have a biographer, my biographer will call the book The Life of Zach. Mm, or, yes, oh. the, the Life of Crippen. Right. <laughs> it would just be way better than just some other, you know, stupid name. Like Zach a Life. <laughs> Zach a Life. That's <laughs> perfect. Or my favorite bi my biography title is an autobiography, and that is uh, Bill Clinton's, and it is My Life. <laughs> 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 well, Perfect. It just sums it all up right there. <laughs> exactly. Well, Kevin, thanks, thanks so much for yeah, explaining Peripatetic to us. We appreciate your insight, even if it's not coming from a position of expertise, but only yeah, exactly, enthusiasm. Exactly. I'll tell you though, you Maybe. have me, you have me convinced. I mean, the whole time you're talking about a uh, Diogenes and the Lyceum and 
uh, Smyrna. I've, I'm sold. You're an expert to me. <laughs> I'm sure the real experts are turning in their graves right now. But <laughs> I'm sure a lot of the real classics experts listen to Redacular Podcast too. So <laughs> I'm sure oh, you, you have never a lot know. to worry about. <laughs> hey, thanks so much, Kevin. Yeah, absolutely. I loved it. All right, we're back on Vernacular Podcast, and we're sitting here with Matthew Lee Anderson, who is a blogger and author, and most recently the author of a book called The End of Our Exploring. Uh, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And also, even more recently, a podcaster. That's right. I forgot to mention that part of your resume. (laughs) It's true. That is true. Yeah, so the podcast that you've been involved in, Matt, is called Mere Fidelity. Did I get that right? You did. Yeah, that's well done. And you basically sit down with uh, a bunch of other thinkers, uh, primarily theologians or ethicists, and you talk through big life questions. Calling them thinkers is overstating it. Uh, (laughs) That's that's not true. They're all very bright guys, mostly theologians. Um, We're the least organized podcast um, that I think could possibly exist. I don't know. I've heard some pretty disorganized (laughs) ones out there. They could probably give you a run for your money. I bet we top them all. Uh, I... uh, so we, we generally talk about whatever we have been reading that week or thinking about that week. So we're kind of all over the place. Well, you've also written a couple books, as Zach said, and your most recent book, as he just said, is The End of Our Exploring, a book about questioning and the confidence of faith. So people, I think, often assume that faith and or religion, however you want to call it, are incompatible with questioning and doubting. But you're a Christian, and you encourage people to raise questions and to critically evaluate their own beliefs. So can you tell us what, what is so important about questioning? Yeah, um, I've, I had the luxury of going through an educational uh, system uh, as, as an undergraduate that was all dialectical. It was all questioning. Uh, it was me and 16 students and a faculty member sitting around for three hours at a time, uh, talking with each other, exploring these ideas. And um, in that process, I, I, I started to see that the way in which we ask questions and the way in which we inquire is a kind of microcosm for how we live our lives. The same sorts of virtues or vices that come out in my relationship with my wife uh, also come out in how I think about the world. And, and not just in the like ideas, the actual substantive ideas that I have, but the actual process that I engage in, uh, the, the, the manner in which I reflect and, and explore. Um, and so I, I really tried to, to um, wrestle with you know, this, this tension within Christianity between claiming to have answers, um, because probably if people know any Christians in their lives, we're sort of notorious at being answer people, um, probably to a fault. Um, uh, but, but we do think that we have some answers to life's deepest and uh, most fundamental questions. But at the same time, um, those answers like aren't the end of the story. There's we do to, to say you have an answer doesn't mean that there isn't more to learn about that answer, more to grow into that answer, or more depths to be enjoyed. And so there's this interesting tension between thinking that you've arrived, but when it it turns out that when you have arrived, uh, you have further to go. Um, and that's and that's really the the sort of 
central tension, I, I think, of questioning and faith, as it were. You know, the, what you were just saying reminds me of an experience I once had climbing a, uh, I think it's an old um, kind of like coal railway or something up the side of a mountain just outside of Colorado Springs in a town called Manitou Springs. Uh-huh. And for our listeners who may have been there, this is called the Incline. And the first time I climbed the incline, I was going up and going up, and I thought I was reaching what looked like the summit. And it was only as I reached this summit that I realized it was a false summit, and I still had a long way to go because Ooh, basically yeah. <laughs> the, the incline – I don't know if you've, if you've seen this, Matt, or if you've done it, but the incline kind of levels out about halfway or two-thirds of the way up. And it's only when you have oh, boy. have the vantage point that you do almost approaching this false summit that you realize there's so much more to go. So that's oh. kind of what comes to my mind as you're talking about – you know, once we think we arrive at an answer, we realize then we have a lot more to go. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, false summit is a great description for it. Um, I'd, I'd modify the metaphor uh, in one important sense and say, you know, the, the answer or the, the summits aren't linear. Um, so you're not sort of leaving one summit behind and going on to another one. Um, you're always sort of circling around the same level of answers. You know, the, the thing about Christianity is, um, as I see it saying, I believe in Jesus, Jesus died for my sins, etc. That's the sort of answer that you can give in Sunday school. And it works. Um, but it's also the sort of answer that you can come around to at the end of your life after a whole lifetime of learning. And the content that you actually give, pour into that sentence can be so, so rich, so deep um, that, a, you know, in a way that a six-year-old just can't have. Um, but they're the same. It's the same answer all the way through, and so it's a it's a summit where you're always coming back to the same peak, but the peak gets higher and higher and higher each time. If that works at all, that's way too complicated. <laughs> no, that's a good image. Yeah. Uh, another thing that we often hear is that there are no bad questions. Do you do you agree with that, or are there good questions and bad questions? Um, I, so this is, this is probably the most controversial thing that I think about questioning. I think there are bad questions. Oh, I totally uh, agree. That's not controversial to me, but I, I mean, I agree with you that people probably don't like us saying that, but it, it's no. always bothered me when people say there are no bad questions because there are most certainly <laughs> bad yeah. questions. There are most certainly stupid questions that you can ask. <laughs> well, no, well, don't no. be a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> don't be a kindergarten teacher. That's right. No, there are questions, there are questions that are appropriate for the, the, the level of education that people have. And I taught high school, <laughs> you know, I taught high school for two years and, and taught it all dialectically. And I just desperately wanted my students to ask any question that they had. I actually think that that the best questions are the questions that people actually have, um, regardless of how, quote unquote, good they seem. Um, but I, I do think that some questions are um, better than other. And, and what I mean by better is um, they're formulated better. They're directed towards a good end. If you ask me a question for the purposes of embarrassing me, I would actually, I think, be in one sense a really bad question. Um, it'd be a bad thing to do. Um, and all of those, all of those dynamics that, that go into um, moral analysis, I think, come to bear on our inquiries. So I, I think people don't like thinking about whether or not they're bad questions because um, someone is going to come along and be the question judger. 
right? Oh, that that question, that one was a bad question. Uh, that question, that that question is a good question. And by me saying that there are such things as good and bad questions, I do not mean to say that I am the question judger. I that's not a role that I want. Um, uh, but I. But I do think that we have to be able to say some questions are just going to be better than others. So then what are the components of a good question? I think the one you mentioned is that it needs to be directed towards a good end. But what exactly do you mean by that? And are there other criteria that a good question needs to meet? Yeah, I mean, mostly mostly what is going to determine the goodness or the appropriateness of a question is the context. So it's, it's hard to think about what a good question is absent any kind of context. So in this conversation, um, what's setting up what a good question is, is the history of the conversation, right? If you were to ask me all of, this, all of a sudden um, whether or not um, I like baseball, it would be unless you had some sort of way of tying it into the conversation, it wouldn't have any bearing at all on what we were talking about. Do you and like baseball, though? I, I do. Okay, good. <laughs> right, just to, so we're clear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just, we, we need to get that you can keep out. talking. You can keep being <laughs> a right. guest on our show. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks. I know that's a rule with you guys. Exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, so there is, there is some sort of context there that determines the fittingness of a question. Um, and I think there's also, like, the actual form of questions, the words and the concepts that we actually put to them. Um, once, we, once we identify the right sort of trajectory of the conversation and see how our question is going to move the conversation forward or move our, our thoughts forward in a different direction or in the direction we want to go, um, figuring out what concepts, how we need to actually word the question is a skill. It's something that journalists practice their whole lives, figuring out how do I ask this question in just the way that I get the information that I need to know to write my story. Um, if you talk to any journalist, they'll, they'll absolutely affirm that there are good questions for doing that and bad questions. Sure. So, so the title of the book is The End of Our Exploring, but in light of what you just said, what is the end of our, what, what should the end of our question be? In other words, what should the goal of our question be? So if, if the number one criterion for a good question is that it is directed towards a good end, what is that end? Yeah. So again, some of it's going to be, um, situational, you know, the questions that a doctor asks are going to be different than, uh, the questions that a journalist asks. I think in our, in the context that I'm writing in, um, I want the end to be understanding. Um, I want the purpose of, our inquiry into the world to be a kind of growth in wisdom about it, um, a deepened awareness of uh, the way the world is and how we fit into it, and um, more confidence sort of walking through it and navigating its difficulties. Um, I think it's possible. It's, 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 it's really tempting to ask questions for all sorts of other ends. It's tempting to ask questions because... Uh, we think they make us sound smart or um, uh, because our teachers like it or so on and so forth. And I think, you know, there's always going to be some mixed motivations in there. But I want the end of my exploring, the end of my inquiries to be ordered by this understanding and this wisdom. That's my hope. Your example a few minutes ago about a bad question being one where you would try to make fun of someone um, made me think of a term you use in your book, intellectual empathy. And I was wondering if you could expand on that and explain why that's important in this whole questioning project. Yeah. So one of the things that we do in questioning and when we talk with people, we often come up with disagreements, right? We come up against the fact that, you know, this person doesn't see the world 
the way that I do. And as I'm questioning and as I'm inquiring, I'm trying to understand the world, but that means um, a recognition that I might be wrong and the person that I'm talking with might be right. Um, what I'm trying to get at with the, the language of intellectual empathy is a kind of mental identification with how they see the world. I'm trying to um, allow, to, to, to inquire so much and to find out just all the fine-grained details of their outlook so that in one way, I could say what they think about the world as well as they could, and maybe even better than they could, right? But to do that, I've got to immerse myself in how they see the world. I have to be able to identify uh, myself with their point of view at a pretty deep level. Um, and so that sort of intellectual empathy, I think, is, is one of the most dangerous parts about questioning. It's one of the hardest parts about questioning because you have to um, you have to be able to genuinely and sympathetically and, and charitably um, see the world from from a point of view that you deeply disagree with, um, and that's that's that just takes a lot of a lot of um, grace that I often do not have. Now, I certainly agree with your point here, uh, but what would you say to a critic who said that? the problem with the world today is not that people don't ask questions, but that people actually lack conviction. Yeah. Um, uh, that would be, I'd be tempted to agree with them. Um, I mean, I want, I want the questions to be rooted in a deep kind of conviction. There's a way of, there, were, there is a way of questioning that's not rooted in a deep sort of conviction. That's just annoying. Um, so when I was, uh, early on in my college education, I thought that the way to be a um, wise questioner was to say, oh yeah, um, why do you think that to every single question? As though, you know, asking why is somehow like the most profound question <laughs> right, exactly. possibly asked. I'm Socrates, basically. <laughs> That's right. Um, which is just a recipe for annoying all your friends and family, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> And it doesn't come out of a deep sort of sense of conviction. It's not ordered towards a, a, a really robust sense of understanding. It was ordered towards posturing and, and appearing like I, I was learning. Um, so I do think that there is a kind of crisis of conviction, but it comes out, it, it manifests itself in bad forms of inquiry. In one sense, I, I feel like the, the more robust your convictions are, the deeper and the more free your questioning should be um, because you just have more confidence to meet every uh, point of view, every idea with an openness and with um, a sense of interest and with the hopefulness that you might learn something from them. And you don't the, the the sort of the weaker your convictions are, the less understanding, the less sort of internal structure you have. Um, you're going to meet different ideas with a lot of fear, and your questions are going to be um, much worse because of that. So, so my hope is that deep convictions would go hand in hand with with good questioning. I think that makes a lot of sense to me because. If you're very convicted about something, you'll believe very strongly in it, but you'll also really not want to be snuckered by it, right? So you, 
you, you want to make sure that what you believe is true. And so you'll be more motivated to ask questions to make sure that what you believe is true. Yeah, I hope that I hope I really hope that's true. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I wonder myself if it is. Um, I mean, I say it and I think there are certain there are certain people who get who self label as fundamentalists who have no sense of inquiry, who have no sense of openness, and they seem to believe things very deeply, and, and they seem like the um, counterexample to my hypothesis. Well, can, can we I, differentiate here between someone who is convicted and someone who is, uh, for lack of a better word, obstinate? I hope so. Um, but it's hard. it's hard to tell the difference because there is a kind of rational obstinacy. Uh, actually, a, a Christian writer, C.S. Lewis, has an essay called The Obstinacy of Belief, um, which is just a great description. You know, there, there's a sense in which um, it, even if I lose an argument on something that's deep and fundamental to my point of view, I'm not necessarily going to change my mind immediately. Um, I'm going to be a little obstinate because it is deep and fundamental to my point of view. And I think that obstinacy is in some cases justified, but decide like figuring out when it's justified and when it's just an, ir an irrational commitment to you, how I see the world, because that's how I see the world. And that's it. Like, I, I'm not sure how to tell the difference. You wrote an essay on your blog that you founded, Mere Orthodoxy, um, last summer about reading and the end of dialogue. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. What does it mean to read well or read deeply, as you say in your article? And what's the relationship between reading well and questioning well? Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, part of it is if we read well, um, I think we practice the kind of intellectual empathy that I was describing. We um, immerse ourselves in... Um, sentences that someone else puts in our head, and we do so charitably. We, 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 in in a sort of weirdly literal sense, we actually take those sentences into our mind, and we allow allow those sentences to build an architecture of thought. Um, and the sort of longer pieces that we read, um, as we read books, the architecture of thought gets more and more robust. Um, and so partly I, I worry about the short form writing that most of us consume is actually, um, I worry that it's actually undermining our ability to question well, because the architecture of thoughts that we have in our mind um, are sort of less sort of robust. They're, they're sort of more bricolage. They're thrown together in a hasty way and they have all sorts of disconnected pieces. Um, so I, I think reading well and reading deeply um, and reading slowly is really connected to questioning and, and understanding in a deep way. Well, I like that a lot. Um, shift gears a little bit here. I want you to talk about what prompted you to start a podcast and how that's been going for you. <laughs> uh, the podcast has been going well, thank you. I don't know what prompt what what prompted you guys to start a podcast. Um, uh, it was all Sally, actually. <laughs> yeah. Sally's been into podcasts for years, and she one day last year thought hey, it'd be fun to start a podcast. Yeah, I just listened to so many podcasts, and I suggested to Zach that maybe I'd ask one of my girlfriends to start with me, and he was like, "Well, I'll start a podcast with you." <laughs> so we started and right. came up was with that the a name. Step up and... to step down was that? <laughs> it, it was definitely a step down. 
down probably. It changed the nature of what I had in mind, but I really think for the better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, I actually didn't listen to any podcasts and still don't for the most part. It's a except this one though. Except this one, of course. Um, It's it's a weakness that I have. Um, You know, I started it partly because um, I just wanted to talk to with the guys that um, that are on it with me about. various aspects about the world it was it was purely like narcissistic for me it was really all about me and my benefit and me having fun conversations with people and not at all about helping others or (laughs) there was no there was no other interest in it at all so well i think uh, it almost has to start that way because if you start counting on having a huge listenership then good point, yeah. then you just could get burned out easily so if you just start with it wanting to be for your own benefit i mean really we started because we thought it would be fun so yeah i and i think that's a fine reason to do it um we you know the guys that are on it with me are um very famous uh much more famous than i and so um they've actually pulled in an audience that that has been tons of fun and an enormous blessing um and has changed the the texture and the character of the podcast in in ways that are for the good but um but it's been really good well thanks for coming on our show and sharing your thoughts on questioning and hopefully we've asked some good questions and you haven't been <laughs> silently judging our questions <laughs> remember i'm not the question judger. right right, right. right. very I'm, important very important well, it's been great having you, Matt. Thanks so yeah, much. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, we're back to wrap up episode six. We just wanted to remind you to head over to iTunes to rate and or review us. If you leave a spectacular review that is hilarious or just glowing, then we'll read it on our next episode. If you leave a terrible review, we might also read that. But that is not an incentive to leave a terrible review. Right. Yeah, actually, never mind. We're not going to read terrible reviews. <laughs> you can also follow us on Twitter at VernacularPod. Or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash VernacularPodcast. Can... Also, be sure to check out our website, VernacularPodcast.com. There you can let us know if you want to be on the show. You can also check out our blog, blog.vernacularpodcast.com, and sign up for The Vernaculist if you're interested in getting an email every week that has the best reads from around the web. And speaking of email, you can email us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. And I think that's it. I think so. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Hi.